We've known for a long time now that the Conservatives have a problem with Islamophobia. Will a statement from a former minister finally bring the problems within that party out into the open? One issue which we have heard lots about is parties in Downing Street over lockdown. We have a new revelation today. Boris Johnson had a surprise birthday party. We'll be talking you through all the latest developments on that ridiculous story. I'm joined all night by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? Michael, you know how I know that the Conservatives have a problem with Muslims? Go on. It's because I was the only person in London not to be invited to one of these number 10 lockdown parties. <laughs> I mean, come on. You've got them banged to rights there, Ash. In 2015, Nusrat Ghani became the first Muslim woman to be elected as a Conservative MP. In 2018, she was made a transport minister, but she would lose that role in a 2020 reshuffle. This weekend, Ms. Ghani gave an interview where she alleged Islamophobia was to blame. She said, At the post-reshuffle meeting with the Whips, I asked what the thinking was behind the decision to fire me and what the mood music was when my name was mentioned in number 10 concerning the reshuffle. I was told that at the reshuffle meeting in Downing Street, Muslimness was raised as an issue and that my Muslim woman minister status was making colleagues uncomfortable and that there were concerns that I wasn't loyal to the party as I didn't do enough to defend the party against Islamophobia allegations. So, Ghani claimed she was told by a Tory whip that she had lost her front bench job because her, quote, Muslim woman minister status was making colleagues uncomfortable. Remember, this is alleged to have happened in 2020, not 1970. Boris Johnson was the Prime Minister. Ghani continues. When I challenged whether this was in any way acceptable and made clear there was little I could do about my identity, I had to listen to a monologue on how hard it was to define when people are being racist and that the party doesn't have a problem and I needed to do more to defend it. It was very clear to me the whips in number 10 were holding me to a higher threshold of loyalty than others because of my background and faith. This all sounds pretty grim. Remember, ever since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in 2019, there has been renewed attention on Islamophobic comments he has made in the past and Islamophobia in the party more generally. As a Muslim woman, Ghani claims she was expected to go out and loyally defend Boris Johnson against such allegations. If she wasn't willing to use her identity to launder the party's reputation, that was, according to Ghani, seen as a sign of disloyalty. So why are we only hearing about this now? Allies of Boris Johnson have suggested the timing seems designed to do maximum damage to the Prime Minister. So this is what Nusrat Ghani has said. Mark Spencer, the chief whip, has tweeted a response to the claim. So what Mark Spencer tweeted was, to ensure other whips are not drawn into this matter, I am identifying myself as the person Nusrat Ghani MP has made claims about this evening. These accusations are completely false and I consider them to be defamatory. I have never used those words attributed to me. Spencer also pointed out that Ghani had failed to ask the Conservative Party for a formal investigation. Downing Street made a similar point, releasing a statement on Sunday which said... After being made aware of these extremely serious claims, the PM met with Nusrat Ghani to discuss them. He then wrote to her expressing his serious concern and inviting her to begin a formal complaint process. She did not subsequently do so. But then after that, Ghani hit back 
When I told the Prime Minister in June 2020 what had been said to me in the government's whips office, I urged him to take it seriously as a government matter and instigate an inquiry. He wrote to me that he could not get involved and suggested I use the internal Conservative Party complaint process. This, as I had already pointed out, was very clearly not appropriate for something that happened on government business. After initial resistance, a government investigation has now been launched. It will likely be led by a civil servant in the Cabinet Office. But speaking to the media today, Boris Johnson was reluctant to be drawn on the issue of Islamophobia. We, we take these allegations extremely seriously. I took them uh, very seriously when they were raised with me 18 months ago. Very glad there's uh, an investigation uh, taking place now. Can't say more really about it. But what I can say is I'm here in Milton Keynes University Hospital focusing on what I think is one of the biggest issues facing the, the country and something that people really want us to fix. And that is how we come out of COVID, not just with our economy open, more open than any other uh, society economy in, in Europe, but how we deal now with the COVID backlogs. I was going to ask about COVID, addition, but very briefly... In addition to what we're doing, just quickly, in addition to what we're doing on, on diagnostics hubs uh, and, of course, on the, the massive investments that we're making in staff. Just back on this, Ratkani, do you believe that Mark Spencer can stay in his job while this investigation is going on? I think, really, you, you we, we, uh, just get back to the key point, this is something I take personally extremely seriously. I took it very seriously 18 months ago. Uh, we must wait and see what the uh, investigation uh, produces. So once again, an ongoing investigation means Boris Johnson just can't possibly comment on a controversy facing his party. It's no wonder he keeps launching them. We're going to get on to the Tory party history of Islamophobia in a second, but I do think it's important to look at the internal politicking of this because you're right. This does seem to have been calibrated to inflict maximum damage, if not on Boris Johnson as an individual, then on his government's whipping operation. Because, of course, with the kinds of comments being made by William Ragg, who advised his colleagues to make reports uh, either to the cabinet office or even to the police if they felt that intimidation and threats from the whips office were going too far, this is telling you that the authority is broken down between backbenchers and those who are supposed to enforce the party line amongst them. Government whipping operations are supposed to do two things. One is that they're supposed to, of course, do this job that I mentioned, which is keep these backbenchers in line. But the other thing they're supposed to do is be a line of communication between those backbenchers and the government saying, okay, this is how far you can go. This is realistically how far you can push them. And all of that communication has traditionally been done in the shadows. Now, I think that some of the nastiness, the bullying, the intimidation, the threats, this stuff has developed because Westminster is a toxic working environment. It's not unique to any one party or government. There have been accounts of even new Labour policy people talking about how one new MP was walking down a corridor, a whip got hold of him, pushed him against the wall and twisted his balls and said, son, you've done nothing to upset me. But imagine if, you know, I was really annoyed. All of that, I think, is about this very macho masculine culture where people enjoy bullying for its own sake. So it would be surprising if racism was, was a part of that. There's all sorts of other nastiness in there. But this is an operation which can only work when shrouded in darkness, when there's a spotlight on it that's telling you that fundamentally the authority of the whip's office under Boris Johnson is broken. 
this wouldn't just be an issue with the whip. I take your point. Here she's saying something about what the chief whip has or has not said. She's alleging what he said. He's obviously denied it. But if that was the real reason she was shuffled, then that's a Boris Johnson decision because obviously it's, it's the prime minister who decides who has all of those posts. So it could be very personally damaging to him. And I suppose some of the context that his allies are pointing out is that Nusrat Ghani is vice chair of the 1922 committee, and that represents Tory backbenchers. There's only one other vice chair, and that's William Ragg who came out and, and talked about the various, or well, I mean, in, in his words, blackmail used to get MPs to vote with the government, which is leading some people to think it's coordinated. And I suppose my question to you, Ash, is one, do you think that's plausible? And two, would it matter? Even if Nusrat Ghani has decided to time this now because she thinks it will do maximum damage to Boris Johnson, would that in any way lessen the significance of her claim? Or I suppose another explanation was she only feels confident enough to come out with this now that he's already weak. What's your sort of assessment of, of that aspect of this? I mean, yes, I think it's plausible that it was coordinated, but I don't think it particularly matters because the only thing that does matter is whether or not she's telling the truth. If she is telling the truth, it means that at the very least, you had a chief whip who felt comfortable to say that your identity as a Muslim woman prevents an obstacle to your advancement in terms of your political career. And if it's a problem which extends beyond the chief whip, and this is an order which came from Boris Johnson, it was a problem identified by Boris Johnson, then it's an issue of racism which goes right to the top of the Conservative Party. Now, I think that it's important for us to separate some of these issues a little bit. I do think that this is only coming to light because of all the drama surrounding Boris Johnson, the Sue Gray investigation, all the parties, and the fact that his authority has been weakening really since Owen Patterson onwards. But this issue of Islamophobia, of a pattern of anti-Muslim hostility throughout the party is much bigger than any one prime minister's premiership, I would say. We're going to go into loads of detail on that in the next section. If you were shocked by Tory MP Nusrat Ghani's allegation that she was sacked as a minister for her Muslimness, then prepare to be properly shaken. Because if true, the claim is only the latest in a long history of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party. We all remember Boris Johnson's Telegraph article from 2018 when he wrote of Muslim women, it is absolutely ridiculous that people should choose to go around looking like letterboxes. If a constituent came to my MP's surgery with her face obscured, I should feel fully entitled, like Jack Straw, to ask her to remove it so that I could talk to her properly. If a female student turned up at school or at a university lecture looking like a bank robber, then ditto. Letterboxes and bank robbers. The Press Gazette reported that anti-Muslim incidents increased 375% in the week following publication of that piece. 58% of those incidents involved visibly Muslim women who wore a face veil, and 42% of them directly referenced Boris Johnson or the language used in that column. But Johnson is not the only Conservative to have traded in Islamophobic tropes. In the 2016 election campaign for Mayor of London, Tory candidate Zach Goldsmith was running against Labour's Sadiq Khan. As the campaign heated up, he wrote this article in the Daily Mail, which was widely condemned for attempting to pander to anti-Muslim sentiment. The headline read, On Thursday, are we really going to hand the world's greatest city to a Labour party that thinks terrorists are its Friends it has a picture there of a terrorist attack in, in London, obviously a horrible association which is being made. In other 
parts of the Conservative Party. MP Bob Blackman is another Tory politician with a long history of Islamophobia. In February 2016, Blackman retweeted this post by far-right activist Tommy Robinson. I won't read it out, but it clearly implies that Muslims are murderous. A year later, Blackman hosted Tapam Ghosh, an anti-Muslim extremist at the House of Commons. Ghosh has called for the UN to control the Muslim birth rate and has appeared on Tommy Robinson's YouTube channel. Outside Westminster in 2019, it emerged that 14 Tory party members had been suspended for posting racist or Islamophobic material on social media. Baroness Varsi, who was a Tory minister between 2010 and 2014, has long tried to address Islamophobia in the party. On the question of an internal inquiry, she told The World at One, We have a deep-rooted problem of anti-Muslim comments, Islamophobic comments, racist comments that have been made right from the top, from MPs through to councillors, council candidates, members, linked groups. I think it has now gone beyond that, and we need an independent inquiry. The Equality and Human Rights Commission was called on to launch an inquiry into Islamophobia in the Conservative Party at the same time as it was undertaking an investigation into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. By March 2020, the Muslim Council of Britain had submitted a dossier of 300 allegations of Islamophobia to the EHRC. These included cases involving free Tory MPs. One was Sally Ann Hart. She'd shared an article on Facebook by US anti Islam activist Sherry Behrens. So she described this article as an affecting read. In the post, Behrens described the Women's March Against Trump as having been hijacked by the Muslim Brotherhood in order to promote the Muslim agenda. Hart was investigated and cleared by the Tory party. Anthony Brown, MP for South Cambridgeshire, questioned the loyalty of British Muslims in his book, Do We Need Mass Immigration?, writing about Muslim leaders who questioned whether the Iraq war could cause social unrest in the UK, he wrote, Whatever the merits or demerits of war on Iraq, it is hardly a national strength to have a large minority with such divided loyalties during war. And Carl McCartney MP for Lincoln retweeted anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic material posted by Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins. Both Brown and McCartney apologised. Of course, there is also a government minister with a history of retweeting fascists and spreading Islamophobic hate. Of course, I'm talking about Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries. These examples are all between 2017 and 2018. Defending Johnson's Telegraph article on talk radio, she said... I'm disappointed Boris didn't go further. He could have called for a ban on the burqa and the release of Muslim women segregated in society. Many of these women are not free to choose their own husbands. This tweet targeted Sadiq Khan, but has nothing to do with what he said. So you can see here she's quote tweeted Sadiq Khan. How about it's time to act on sex abusing grooming gangs instead? So completely irrelevant to what Sadiq Khan has tweeted there. So we have to wonder why she sent it. Clearly, to my mind, that's completely Islamophobic about the, the most high-profile Muslim politician in the country. Doris has also, quote, tweeted a nonsense story about Muslims claiming benefits for multiple wives. So she said here, ministers, are you having a laugh? Responding to someone with all of these union jacks sharing this, this nonsense story. And Nadine Doris has also retweeted Tommy Robinson. Still, despite all of this evidence and more, the EHRC decided in May 2020 not to investigate the Tory party. 
A few months later, it emerged that two former EHRC commissioners had not been reappointed to the commission because they were, in their words, too loud and vocal about issues of race. Baroness Maral Hussain Eki then was then the only Muslim on the commission, and Lord Simon Woolley, who was the only black commissioner, both lost their jobs in 2012 on Islamophobia in the Tory party. Hussain Eki said, I don't think Islamophobia or anti-Muslim hate is taken seriously. And at the time of the EHRC decision in 2020, there were still no black or Muslim commissioners. For their part in 2021, the Conservative Party published the result of an investigation they commissioned. It was called the Singh Investigation and concluded that following in-depth scrutiny of the individual cases provided by Baroness Varsi, alongside the totality of evidence gathered by the investigation, we concluded that allegations of institutional racism against the party were not borne out by the evidence available to the investigation. Baroness Varsi disagreed, asked whether she thought the report cleared the Tory party of institutional Islamophobia. Varsi said this. I think the findings of this report show clearly that the Conservative Party is institutionally racist. And that's based upon the definition of what is institutional racism. McPherson, the McPherson inquiry was very clear. It defines um, institutional racism as, and I'll quote this, the collective failure of an organisation detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour. And each of them as part of this report that people are still giving evidence anonymously. They don't feel confident to add their name to the evidence of racism that they're giving. And those that do give evidence, complainants are seen as troublemakers. Behaviour, the report concludes that from the top, from the prime minister at one level, to local associations at the bottom, there is an attitude issue and a problem and a behaviour issue in terms of uh, Islamophobia. So on each of those counts, it satisfies the definition of institutional racism. And, and Beth, you know, the way I see it, if it looks like institutional racism, feels like institutional racism, fits the definition of institutional racism, then I'm afraid it is institutional racism. Ash, I want to bring you in on this. Has Varsi finally been vindicated? I think she has been. One of the problems is that the Islamophobia within the Tory party has been propped up by a series of institutions, which include the EHRC and also the wider political media. Because the kinds of attitudes you see amongst the Tory party membership are indicative of a party which has been essentially radicalised into a state of pervasive anti-Muslim hatred. There was polling conducted by Hope Not Hate. And what it found was that half of the Tory party members surveyed, these are card-carrying Conservative Party members, think that Islam is a threat. You had six in 10 of those surveyed reporting that they believe that in this country, there are no-go zones where non-Muslims cannot tread. And there was other polling conducted which indicated that a fifth of Tory party members self-reported having very negative views of Muslims. And for comparison, there were only 3% of Tory party members reporting that they felt the same way about Hindus, Sikhs and Jewish people. So we're talking about a culture of pervasive Islamophobia, and it is something which is unfortunately reflected at the level of counsellors. I've had my own experiences of frankly appalling 
attitudes towards racism being expressed directly towards me by a sitting conservative councillor. And then we've seen it repeated on the conservative backbenches and also the ministerial level right up to the prime minister. So that is telling you something about this institution. But you have a consensus, a manufactured consensus amongst the media that this simply isn't very important. When Laura Koonsberg was tweeting about Conservative Party Islamophobia, she referred to it as being a different political scale, right? Not different political side, scale. So that's doing a lot of work of minimizing the problem. Philip Collins, when he was still a columnist for the Times, wrote that Labour's racism is worse than the Conservatives. Now, why? On what measure could we say that it's worse? Because one, the Conservatives are in government. So there is the ability for them to action their institutional racism in policy. I personally would argue that the measures in the Borders and Nationality Bill, which create a whole class of second-class citizens in this country who can be made stateless if they either have dual nationality or the Home Office can argue that they could have dual nationality, I could fit into that category. That shows you an institutionally racist policy in action stripping citizenship from Shamima Begum rather than having her come here to face trial for what she may have done. That is, again, institutional racism in action. The fact that you have MPs like Michael Fabricant, like Nadine Dorries, still retaining the Conservative Party whip after a pattern of Islamophobia, that tells you you have an institutionally racist party. So I don't understand how it was justifiable for anyone in the media to minimize that problem or say that it was lesser, it was less severe, it was on a different political scale to what was going on in Labour. Because if there was polling amongst Labour Party members showing similar attitudes being displayed towards any kind of religious or ethnic minority, particularly under Corbyn, it would have been, I think, you know, potentially the end of the party, certainly the end of his premiership. When it came to the Conservatives and Muslims, it was swept under the rug. And the reason why is because institutional Islamophobia is writ through British society, whether that is government, whether that is media, whether that is how the state functions, how the home office functions, policing, it has passed a level of respectability. And that's why it has been, I think, minimized and dismissed for so long. And it's only become visible because it is politically convenient to recognize it within the context of Boris Johnson's failures as prime minister. I'm glad you mentioned that Laura Koonsberg tweet because, I mean, it's resurfaced now. And looking at it again, what really struck out to me is what is a political scale? So she said this is on a different political scale to Labour. And it was a story about Islamophobia in, in the Conservative Party. She was comparing it to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because she's not saying this is on a different scale to, you know, she's not saying there's less Islamophobia than there is anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. She's just saying this is of less political consequence than the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which is essentially what she was saying. But she has a role in deciding how consequential it is because she kind of decides what ends up being on the BBC News at six. So there's this very strange circular argument where she's saying this is less politically significant than, than anti-Semitism in Labour when she actually determines what counts as significant and doesn't. Let's go on to our next story. After Nusrat Ghani alleged that she'd lost a ministerial job because she was a Muslim, there was one MP desperate to go out 
and defend the Tory party. It's Michael Fabricant. As you say, the timing is interesting. It's not only, I think, uh, open season on the whip's office. I think far more importantly, all this is because it's open season on Boris Johnson and putting pressure on him from the party to try and get him to resign, um, which I think is all very, very sad. Look, you know, prejudice of any kind in modern Britain is pretty pathetic. It was mm. pathetic 100 years ago. It's even more pathetic now when this sort of thing happens. But, uh, you know, ministers, they come and they go. Uh, sometimes it's because you want to refresh the ministerial team. Sometimes it's because they were useless. Sometimes yeah. because they're just average and mediocre and you want to put somebody else in. Um, I think the whole thing actually stinks, uh, the accusation being made by Nazgani. I mean, for her to say that someone had said it's because she's a Muslim, I mean, she's hardly uh, someone who's obviously a Muslim. I mean, I had no idea what religion she is. I mean, the Labour MP, Keith Vaz, who was of uh, South Asian origin, he actually, I do know, because we discussed it, he's no longer an MP, but he was a Goan Christian. Yeah. And others are Hindus and others are Muslims and whatever. But... Um, with her, it wasn't apparent. So it does seem rather a lame excuse to me that she claims that she was sacked because of that. And uh, frankly, you know, there is the timing, as you say, is very suspicious. So according to Michael Fabricant, Ghani couldn't have suffered Islamophobia because she's, quote, hardly someone who's obviously a Muslim. And he goes on, by the way, another South Asian person I know is a Christian. Ash, what did you make of that defence from Michael Fabricant? Will Boris Johnson be thanking him for, for going out and defending him that way? Michael Fabricant is a boob. I'm sorry, that's all there is to it. Here is somebody whose sole job in politics is to go onto the radio, go onto the TV and say the most ignorant thing that pops into his little bird brain. And I think that it is indicative of the sickness within our political media and the sickness within politics that he has a public profile with which to do so. Any competent interviewer, which of course excludes Andrew Pierce, would have talked about the fact that you don't have to be obviously Muslim to experience Islamophobia. I'll give you one example. My grandmother, who doesn't wear the hijab, who was actually born a Hindu, when we were outside a service station after having just gotten into Wales, me and my friends were coming out with a coffee and I witnessed a bunch of guys in a car yelling jihad and terrorist at her. Now, what evidence did they have that she was Muslim. Have they ever heard her make her salat? No. Uh, did they know that she converted to Islam to marry my grandfather? No. It was that they saw a South Asian woman. Um, so you don't have to be so-called visibly Muslim in order to experience Islamophobia. If you did, then Hindus, Sikhs, South Asians who have other religions, they would never have experienced Islamophobia in their lives. So it's breathtakingly ignorant. Then again, Michael Fabricant knows what he's talking about when it comes to the matter of performative ignorance. This is a man who tweeted an image of Sadiq Khan, a big inflatable Sadiq Khan, having sex with a pig. He then claimed that he didn't know uh, that there was a pig in this image. Um, this is somebody who, who has only been able to get away uh, with being this stupid and insulting the public's intelligence because he has been allowed to do so. So I, I, I almost don't want to judge 
Michael Fabrican. The man is a boob. The man is an ignoramus. The man is totally unfit for public office of any kind. But he has one and he is able to come onto the radio and spew his nonsense thanks to the media that we have. All very well put. We're going to go to one more interview now where I think the interviewer let the interviewee off the hook. Islamophobia is clearly rife in the Conservative Party, but Labour hardly has a glowing record on the issue. We've spoken before on the show to Zara Sultana MP, who received no support from Keir Starmer when she was subjected to Islamophobic abuse. Research for the Labour Muslim Network has also found that over one in four Muslim members had directly experienced Islamophobia in the Labour Party. Some of those concerns were put to Labour MP and chair of the Parliamentary Standards Committee, Chris Bryant doesn't have a problem, but you'll be aware of the um, survey done by the Labour Muslim Network back in 2020, 60% thereabouts of Muslim members and supporters didn't feel well represented by the party and 25% felt that uh, they had directly experienced uh, Islamophobia within the party. Nobody's ever made those allegations to me, but if, if people in my own political party have uh, problems with uh, Islamophobia, and if, that, if that's a reality, then of course they, um, that needs to be investigated. Um, I think these things on the whole, you know, the Labour Party has been investigated over anti-Semitism. I know, I know more about that, Kay. I'm afraid I wasn't uh, um, expecting you to ask me questions about this, so I'm not very well briefed on, on what you're asking about at the moment. So in other words, essentially... I had intended to come on here to trash Jeremy Corbyn and exonerate Keir Starmer. Could you ask me about Jews instead of Muslims to make that a bit easier? That's what that answer was. Uh, the Labour Muslim Network were not impressed by Chris Bryant's answer, so they tweeted, This is unacceptable. For over two years, the Labour Muslim Network has been briefing Labour MPs on the problem of Islamophobia within our party and our society. Not listening is not an acceptable answer. Now, I think Chris Bryant came across really badly there. I also thought... Kay Burley came across pretty poorly. Brian is the chair of the Parliamentary Standards Committee and he's doing a media round on Tory Islamophobia. If he's not briefed about serious allegations of Islamophobia in his own party, you should press him on why he isn't, not just let him get away with it. Okay, you weren't briefed on that. Let's move on. Ash, what did you make of that exchange? I think it is depressingly typical of how the discourse around UK race relations has functioned since 2017, 2018. What has happened is that the focus on anti-Semitism within the Labour Party has gone beyond looking at the problem for what it is accurately, fairly, without fear or favour, and has actually diminished, belittled dismissed discussions of Islamophobia and anti-blackness in particular, both when you're looking at it at the level of the entirety of society and British institutions, but also within progressive circles. One of the things that you will often hear from people who are talking about the Labour Party and anti-Semitism is no other minority would be treated this way. And I wrote an article about this, I think about a year ago. And the problem with that is that it's, I think, wholly misleading because when there was a report looking at Muslim Labour Party members' experiences of Islamophobia, it had nowhere near the kind of media coverage, attention, 
or outrage as any such document produced around the time of the Labour anti-Semitism crisis. When Channel 4 did a dispatches into Tory party Islamophobia, I was not asked to do any media. I was not asked to talk about my experiences as you know, a Muslim in the public eye, but I was invited many times to discuss labor and anti-Semitism, including being asked to come on to Victoria Derbyshire for a special hour and a half long program after the labor anti-Semitism panorama aired. So there was a hierarchy of racism being established, which let people of color know where we were, that we were at the bottom. And unfortunately, it wasn't just people within the media I saw perpetuating this hierarchy. It was people within so-called progressive circles as well. There was a human rights lawyer saying that when people talk about Windrush, it is a form of whataboutery to distract from Labour anti-Semitism. I've seen people, you know, say that if you are black or if you are Asian, if you are visibly ethnic, then of course your experiences of racism are instantly recognized and people are on your side, which is just delusional, actually, if, if you're a person of color, because you just have to look at the Labour Party. I'm not talking about conservatives anymore. I'm talking about Labour to see that there has been a consistent problem with Islamophobia. You had an uh, election campaign being run in order to protect the career of Phil Woolas, which was based on, and I quote from somebody who worked on that campaign, getting the white vote angry, keep the focus on the so-called Muslim problem. You've had patterns of Islamophobia being kind of accepted, turned a blind eye to. Trevor Phillips, who referred to British Muslims as a nation within a nation, being readmitted to the party under Keir Starmer. And there has never been any sort of reflection on whether the fact that we as a country were taken to war by a Labour government on false pretenses Hundreds of thousands, if not a million Iraqis dead because of it, a region destabilized, and that all the people involved in that decision enjoy perfectly comfortable roles in public life. And whether we have turned a blind eye to that bloodshed, that, that crime against humanity, because the victims of it were overwhelmingly brown and Muslim. We have never asked that question about the Labour Party and whether that is indicative of a culture of racism amongst the party and amongst the media which covers that party. And so I think what happened with Chris Bryant in that interview with Kay Burley is, again, it is just part of that same depressing pattern in which it's made very clear to Muslims in this country that media doesn't give a shit about racism against you and the Labour Party doesn't give a shit about racism against you. I think that point about the Iraq war, it's just, it just can't be made enough, right? There is a, a Labour Prime Minister who everyone is told to say, oh, grow up, recognise that he did some good things, he, he built sure start centres, he reduced poverty in the country, stop going on about Iraq. You, you get sort of mocked for it. Oh God, they've brought up Iraq again. Well, this guy went into an illegal war where up to a million people were killed. Now, it just so happens that they were brown people, so it's easily ignored by the media, and they were in a country which is perceived as being very far away. But that is way more significant than anything else he did. You know, if it was a million Americans who 
he killed. They wouldn't say, oh, well, he got sure start centers and everything. No, that, that would be seen as a red line. If they've done that, then you can't celebrate this guy as the best prime minister that won free general elections for the Labour Party. But because, you know, people in the media, people in both political parties just don't really empathize with brown people in what are perceived as faraway countries, you can get away with it. You know, they almost see the deaths of all of these people as just sort of a number. It was an accident. You know, ultimately his heart was in the right place. You've got to celebrate the guy because he funded Sure Start Centres. I do find it incredibly disgusting and pernicious. And just, I think once you've sort of noticed it, it just becomes impossible to ignore how pervasive it is throughout every aspect of, of Britain's media and politics that this huge, enormous crime has gone completely unpunished. And even though everyone knows about it, the significance of it is just brushed under the carpet. And that's only possible if you dehumanize the victims of it, dehumanize the people whose lives were ruined and the people who were killed. And again, that, that can only be from essentially racism, because if you're, if you're devaluing the lives of people because you perceive them to be different to you, then that's essentially racism. Let's go to our next story. This was breaking news. ITV News has broken yet Another story about Downing Street lockdown soirees. Apparently, Johnson's wife, Carrie, threw him a surprise party on the afternoon of the 19th of June, 2020. His day started with a visit to Bovingdon School in Hertfordshire. To you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to what a wonderful way to spend my birthday, says Boris Johnson. Well, apparently it got better. ITV report that 30 people attended a surprise birthday bash for Boris Johnson in the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. According to ITV, guests included interior designer Lulu Little of £840 per roll wallpaper fame. She joined Carrie Johnson in presenting Boris with a birthday cake. The Prime Minister's office has not denied the event took place, but claims the PM was only present for 10 minutes. ITV also reports that a separate evening event of family and friends was hosted in the Prime Minister's residence that evening. Downing Street denies that claim, saying instead that Boris Johnson only hosted a small number of family members outside. Ash, on the 19th of June 2020, social gatherings indoors were banned and most schools remained closed to the majority of their pupils. But Carrie Johnson decided to throw her husband a surprise birthday bash of everyone singing happy birthday, something that we, we recognise to be characteristic of super spreader events. What do you make of this story? What do I make of this story? Michael, objectively, it is very, very funny. This man has wanted to be prime minister his whole life. At Eton, he told people his dream job was world king. And he might throw the whole thing away because he thought to himself, Zoom parties could never be me. That sounds broke. That sounds unchic. I'm having a very expensive interior designer present me with a cake instead. Michael, this man is stupid, stupid. Like He has all of the impulse control of a Labrador. He sees a party going on in his home. He can't help but get in the swing of things. He has an unspecified number of children. And he looked at 2020 when we were all in lockdown, still abiding by significant restrictions, even in June. And he thought, you know what, lads, 
it's time for me to live my best life. I can't do this. You do you. I'm having a good time. It is amazing, isn't it? I suppose because his, his excuse up to now has always been, I didn't realise it was a party. I didn't realise the party. I thought it was a work event. You know, I saw the picnic stuff. I saw the bottles of champagne, but it still wasn't giving party to me. Now you've got literally a birthday cake, candles, everyone singing happy birthday. If you can't recognise that as a party, I mean, what does that say about your mental faculties? I mean, I, I've already seen that there are sort of cabinet members. Nadine Doris is coming out and saying this wasn't a party. This was just his birthday. It was a work event. Social work events weren't allowed anyway. Work events were only allowed if it was essential for work. And singing happy birthday to this guy, not essential for work. Also, Lulu Little doesn't work with Boris Johnson. She was just renovating his Downing Street flat, which is another issue that could potentially bring him down. What was he thinking, Ash? What was he thinking? that cake looks fucking delicious give me a slice <laughs> yum yum um michael i don't know why you think there's any other thought going on in his brain like i said he is a man who when presented with an opportunity to indulge himself he has always taken it um he's someone who looks for the path of least resistance in every aspect of his life he has excelled himself in every job he has ever had through incompetence and barefaced lying to people because that's the easier thing to do than working hard. So I find it comical that when the man has done what he always does, which is put his own pleasures first and the demands of his job second, you now have the nation's political journalists going, well, we didn't see this coming. This is very surprising information to me. Look, this is as inevitable as Tristan Thompson cheating on Khloe Kardashian. We know what we're getting with this man. And it is poor impulse control. And, you know, I, I reckon news of another affair before this whole thing is out. That would be my bet. Just my opinion, no substantiation, no evidence. I'm sure if you put this to Boris Johnson, he would deny it and maybe he would be right. But I just think we're in for more comedy before this is all over. And I'm beyond the point of being angry, Michael. I, I can only laugh. I mean, I think if we're going to speculate without any evidence, I would say the things that would really be the icing on the cake for this story is if the affair was with Lulu Little or if there's a picture of like Boris Johnson. I mean, fucking wallpaper is what comes to mind instantly, but it could be, could be anything. I, I want all of the different scandals to combine in a really bizarre way. And I want that to happen the day before he resigns. I feel like there are lots of strings that need to be tied before I'm satisfied that we have reached the conclusion, the finale of this saga. Obviously, potentially going to be an anticlimax for many reasons we've told you about already on this show, but the Sue Gray report should be coming up this week. I think the report is probably going to be a bit of a damp squib, but it will be a huge political moment because once that's out, no one can say, oh, we can't talk about this because we're waiting for the Sue Gray report. As we say, we expect that to come out this week. Ash, it has been a pleasure speaking to you all evening. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Michael. And, you know... I can't wait to see you at the next Downing Street shubs. Me, you, a naked Boris Johnson smeared in birthday cake. It's going to be lit. <laughs> I can't wait. I mean, we'd actually not be breaking the rules this time around as well. So, you know, we could go there with our consciences clear. Thank you for watching tonight. If you are a regular supporter of Navarra Media, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. If you aren't already, you can go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. 
unless something groundbreaking happens tomorrow, we'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. So see you then. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.